Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines of the mainstream news. I'm Steve Rendell, here with Peter Hart. This week on Counterspin, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice traveled to Europe last week to talk about torture, but it was hard for the press to parse exactly what she was saying. Writer Naomi Klein will join us to talk about something else that's missing from the current discussion of torture, namely the history of U.S. support for the practice around the world. Also this week, the Bush Justice Department was embarrassed when a Florida jury acquitted Palestinian activist and academic Sami al-Aryan of many key terrorism-related crimes and deadlocked on the remaining charges. But media figures who were invested in al-Aryan's supposed guilt should be embarrassed as well. We'll talk to Rolling Stone contributing editor Eric Bollert about the media and the Sami al-Aryan saga. All that's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at the week's press. It's not often that the corporate press talk about how many Iraqis have died in the Iraq war, but the media were buzzing with such stories on December 12th when George W. Bush claimed that 30,000 Iraqis have died so far. With that one brief comment, many outlets were suddenly talking about something they've studiously avoided thus far. White House officials scrambled to establish Bush's source for that figure, eventually pointing some reporters to research from Iraq body count. Few outlets noted, however, that their count consists of civilian deaths reported in the media, a valuable yet incomplete tally, as the group has long acknowledged. A statistical estimate published in the British journal The Lancet in November of last year estimated that 100,000 civilian Iraqis had died. That research was either ignored or dismissed last year and was noted only in passing in the coverage of Bush's statement. But perhaps the most revealing aspect of this story was the most obvious one. Bush wasn't asked this question by a reporter who regularly travels with him or by a cable news host or a network anchor. It came from someone in the audience at a Bush event. The real lesson, then, might be the fact that reporters who've had many months to ask Bush or his spokespeople this question have, for the most part, failed to do so. The right wing's war on Christmas hysteria is reaching new heights, and Fox's Bill O'Reilly is leading the charge. On December 9th, O'Reilly provided further examples of the assault on Christmas. In Dodgeville, Wisconsin, he told viewers an elementary school forced students to sing modified lyrics to the familiar Christmas tune, Silent Night, a move O'Reilly called simply absurd. If that wasn't horrifying enough, he had more. In Plano, Texas, O'Reilly said the school board had banned green and red clothing. O'Reilly's response, quote, that's flat-out fascism. If I were a student in Plano, I'd be a walking Christmas tree after that order, close quote. But there's just one problem. Neither of those examples is true. As the Plano school superintendent pointed out, the school district doesn't bar any colors of clothing. The myth seems to have arisen from a lawsuit filed last year accusing the school of not allowing the distribution of religious materials at school holiday parties. That suit included a claim that there was a restriction on red and green napkins, which apparently is the source of O'Reilly's story about a clothing ban. But right after the suit was filed, the school rescinded its napkins policy, which had nothing to do with Christmas bashing anyway. As for Dodgeville, the school does indeed ask its students to sing different lyrics, but not as an attempt to squelch Christmas. In fact, the altered Silent Night is part of a musical called The Little Tree's Christmas Gift, which tells a Christmas tale using new lyrics set to well-known Christmas music. The school says it also has students sing traditional carols at the performance. So it seems the only thing that's absurd in this story is O'Reilly's baseless hysteria. 
It didn't come as a surprise that playwright Harold Pinter would use his Nobel Prize acceptance speech on December 7th to launch a forceful critique of U.S. foreign policy. Pinter's left-wing views are hardly a secret. That's also not surprising that some of the media found his comments off-putting. New York Times reporter Richard Bernstein made his feelings known in a December 11th piece that was, at first, about Condoleezza Rice's trip to Europe. Bernstein turned that story into a familiar lament about European attitudes toward the United States. Bernstein called Pinter's speech the loudest and most strident declaration of anger at the United States and went on to make a curious comparison. He wrote that some segment of the European public, quote, has been angrier at the United States over the years than at America's enemies. Whether the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, a big part of Mr. Pinter's concern, or, for that matter, al-Qaeda's followers in Iraq who behead kidnapping victims on videotape. Close quote. That's a clever sleight of hand linking the leftist Sandinistas to al-Qaeda. Bernstein's logic is puzzling. The Sandinista government was on the receiving end of a massive U.S. intervention in the form of the CIA-backed Contra Army, who were responsible for many thousands of deaths in Nicaragua, a subject Pinter discussed at length in his speech. Why Pinter should have supported the U.S.-backed Contras over the Sandinistas is anyone's guess, and how acknowledging that history could be linked to, say, al-Qaeda is for Bernstein or his editors at the Times to explain. But it's an effective smear, and that seemed to be the point. More than ever, Americans do not trust business or the people who run it. Thus read the lead of a New York Times story on the front page of the paper's December 9th business section. Reporter Claudia Deutsch explained the trend, quote, Pollsters, researchers, even many corporate chiefs themselves say that business is under attack by a majority of the public which believes that executives are bent on destroying the environment, cooking the books, and lining their own pockets, close quote. Deutsch cited scandals such as Enron and Tyco, soaring oil company profits, planned layoffs, sky-high executive pay, military contracting scandals, all real and sensible reasons for why public antipathy toward big business might be rising. Deutsch cited surveys such as a Roper poll showing 72% of the public believe corporate wrongdoing is widespread. Though informative, the article quoted corporate officials and consultants to the total exclusion of critics. And the report included softening language like this gem, quote, Every report of high-dollar executive compensation strengthens the feeling that business funnels money from the workers to the elite, close quote. Thus, Deutsch was attempting to devalue the public's accurate perception of the facts by describing them as mere feelings. But perhaps the strangest thing about the article was its headline, which read, Take your best shot. New surveys show that big business has a PR problem. As if corporate crime, gouging, double-dealing, and employee mistreatment were merely a public relations problem. And finally, Richard Pryor died last week at age 65. The groundbreaking comedian's ability to provoke strong reactions continued even after his death. At least it seemed that way on Fox News Sunday on December 11th, where conservative panelist William Crystal was moved to make bizarre claims about Pryor's politics. 
Panelist Juan Williams had just recalled that Pryor had appeared at the White House for a Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration in 1983, where the comic had become visibly emotional, recalling the heroism of those who fought racist violence. Williams expressed surprise that Pryor attended a White House event during the Reagan era. Looking into it, he discovered that the irreverent comic's appearance had been engineered by none other than Armstrong Williams, then a political operative at the Agriculture Department. An interesting enough anecdote, but much more strange was William Crystal's leap of a reaction. Quote, It's appropriate that Richard Pryor was a Reaganite, maybe a neoconservative, a liberal who was mugged by reality and decided that Ronald Reagan was a great president. Close quote. What? Nobody said Pryor was a Reaganite. He appeared at the White House, along with a lot of other people, to celebrate the designation of a holiday for Martin Luther King's birthday, a step Reagan was dragged to kicking and screaming. As for whether Pryor thought Reagan was a great president, it was weird that Juan Williams didn't point to comments he had himself included in an NPR report. When Pryor was asked in 1983 to respond to people who thought his work was obscene, he said this, quote, You know what's obscene? to me? The President of the United States stands on television and tells people that we are helping to fight communism in South America by killing the people. I would never do that. Close quote. Somebody tell Bill Crystal. Thanks, Peter. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. FAIR also publishes a magazine called Extra. I'll be giving subscription information for Extra later on in the show. <music> Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice went to Europe to explain the U.S. position on torture. The press corps seemed to be tied up in knots over whether she was saying something newsworthy or anything at all. Parsing this debate over torture isn't easy, but the discussion that is presented in the media certainly doesn't offer much in the way of clarity. Our next guest wrote in The Nation that this torture discussion has another, perhaps more serious problem, historical amnesia. Naomi Klein is the author of several books, and she's a columnist for The Nation. She joins us now by phone. Naomi Klein, welcome to Counterspin. Thank you. Now, you started your piece with George W. Bush's bold declaration, we do not torture, but it was the setting for this you found most interesting. Tell us about that and what it was that no one else in the media saw fit to mention about where that speech was delivered. Well, it was delivered in Panama City. It was Bush was on his way home from the Summit of the Americas in Mar del Plata, Argentina, and he came up, uh, I think he stopped in Brazil, and then he ended up in Panama City, and they chose this location to address the building controversy and, and tempest around torture. And what was striking to me was, of course, there was a lot of discussion about what he said and, and what he meant by saying we did not torture, what his definition of torture was. But the declaration was really a declaration about Americanness, you know, Americans don't torture, we don't torture, it's against our nature. And what was particularly striking was that an hour and a half's drive from where uh, the president stood was the original location of the School of the Americas. This is kind of an obvious point, but this is a school that is known throughout the continent more commonly as the, the School of the Assassins. It mm-hmm. trained the soldiers, police officers, who went on to stage countless military coups uh, and are responsible for the greatest war crimes. These are graduates of the School of the Americas in Panama and went on to commit the greatest war crimes of the past half century in the Americas, like the the killing of Archbishop Romero, the the Jesuit priests, 
people like two of the dictators of the of the Argentine junta were trained at at that school and were responsible for not only the disappearances of 30,000 people but the kidnapping of babies so it was really striking to me that this detail that the ch- the, the choice of that as a location wasn't mentioned in a single media report of the event. I searched extensively on this, and I think it just shows how ahistorical, or even even more than ahistorical, anti-historical, mm-hmm. the discussion of torture is and, 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 in the U.S. And I would say that that's true not only of the apologists of torture, not only of people on the right defending torture, but also many of the people on the liberal end of the spectrum who increasingly, and I'm not just talking about McCain, I'm talking about leftists and progressives, who for some reason feel that the most persuasive way to argue against torture is to say that it violates the values of America, that this has never happened before, and there's a a campaign going on right now, torture is not U.S., or torture is not us, but the the sort of double entendre Mm -hmm. is that it's not U.S., and the truth is that Torture has a very, very deep history in in U.S. foreign policy, as the School of the America, I think, most graphically shows. You did mention John McCain, and your piece cited a recent Newsweek cover story on torture. Part of it was written, in fact, by Senator John McCain. He was, of course, a POW in Vietnam. And you noted that this made his personal story all the more problematic for what it left out about what was going on in Vietnam at the time he was held. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, McCain's argument, and he made it in Newsweek, but he makes it again and again, is that the the, the main reason to be against torture is for the interest of our troops uh, and, and the fact that if, you know, if an army is known to torture, then when their soldiers are captured, become POWs, they will often face torture themselves. But more than that, he says that when he was held as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, what, what kept him and his colleagues going was the knowledge, and he writes, that we um, were better than our enemies, that we would never do to others what was being done to us. And, of course, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional argument. It's, it's an argument with a great deal of appeal, but it's an argument that is, uh, is profoundly untrue. I mean, it's possible that at the time... Senator McCain, you know, as a soldier, didn't know about the Phoenix program and the, 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 the mass torture that was taking place. But as a senator, and because of the, the, the Senate and congressional hearings into the Phoenix program, I think it's, it's impossible that he doesn't know that, in fact, CIA agents were themselves torturing and were training South Koreans in, in, in torture techniques that were developed uh, by the CIA under the MKUltra program throughout the 1950s, which included extensive electroshock LSD experiments in actually Canadian universities at McGill University um, and also in U.S. prisons. And all of this has been extensively documented, but it sort of goes into a memory hole, if you will, because when we talk about torture, there is this original sinlessness, this mm-hmm. idea that, it's, that it has never happened before, and every time we hear about it, we are surprised all over again. Now, mainstream media don't often take a keen interest in this kind of critical history, and so maybe it's no surprise that they wouldn't in this case either. But you're arguing something else, I think, that's even more interesting in this piece, that by essentially sort of setting the torture clock to zero with the Bush administration, it all began with this White House, that history is in even more danger of being 
forgotten. Explain a little bit about what you mean by that. This history of, of the MK Ultra program, of the Phoenix program, you know, it's been the subject of countless books. If you have a lot of time on your hands, you can go to the National Security Archives and read the declassified documents. Extraordinarily hard-won victories for public information, but it's as if none of it exists when we pretend, when, when we feign shock, because I, 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 you know, I think that progressives in the U.S. have internalized this idea that in order to get the American public to do the right thing, you can't make them feel bad about themselves. You have to make them feel good about themselves. You have to flatter people into uh, a state of righteousness, which is where this idea that everything was fine before Dick Cheney comes in, or at least Dick Cheney in this administration. So you hear this argument from surprising places, and I think it's problematic for a few different reasons. One, on a moral level, the victims of U.S supported torture, whether in Chile, Argentina, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, the Philippines, Vietnam, you know, are having to watch this because they are alive. I mean, we're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about history since 1967, ultimately. And the fact is that here I'm talking about a specific torture model, the codified model that we can read in, in declassified interrogation manuals, the 1963 Kubarak Manual and then the 1983 Human Exploitation Resources Manual. These are CIA interrogation manuals that were translated into Spanish that were taught at the School of the Americas. Once again, we, we can read them because of Freedom of Information Act requests by investigative journalists at the New York Times, at the Baltimore Sun, at the Progressive, but even the New York Times, which, which played an important role, especially the New York Times, which played an important role in getting access to these documents, now has no memory of those documents in their reporting. Just to come back to the documents, what they do is they codify, and this is where I talk about a, a book that's coming out in January that is extraordinarily important by Alfred McCoy, who's a historian, and uh, the book is called The Question of Torture. He really synthesized all of this. I was you know, fortunate enough to read the book in galleys, but it will be out in January. What he talks about as, as a historian of torture is seeing the quintessential image from Abu Ghraib of the hooded prisoner on the box with electrodes attached to his hands, and, and the shock at that image and the discussion of whether it was a fraternity prank and where it came from and, and who was responsible. And he then traces all of the techniques that are used, hooding, humiliation, electroshock, to the MKUltra experiments in the 50s and then the codifying of those experiments into the 1963 manual, which talks about hooding, sensory deprivation, electroshock, and so on. We could find examples of U.S. Uh, of torture in the United States, dating back much further than 1963. But in 1963, we see the codification of precisely these, the torture uh, methods that we're now seeing in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And so it's very important to understand it for the victims, because I say in the piece that it's as if the disappeared are being disappeared all over again. We've been speaking with Naomi Klein. Her article, Never Before, Our Amnesiac Torture Debate, can be read at thenation.com. Her most recent book is Fences and Windows, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Globalization Debate. Naomi Klein, thanks so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. (music) 
The collapse of the federal case against Palestinian activist and academic Sami al-Aryan embarrassed the Bush Justice Department. It also offered a hint into why the White House has been depriving other suspects of the kind of constitutional due process that resulted in al-Aryan's acquittal on the most serious charges and a deadlocked jury on the others. Some media were also embarrassed by the acquittals, or they ought to have been, for instance, a Washington Post editorial about Al-Aryan's 2003 indictment suggested the evidence against him was so strong that supporters and academic freedom activists protesting his suspension from the University of Southern Florida were little more than dupes. Post editors were tellingly silent following the December 6th acquittals. Joining us now is Rolling Stone contributing editor Eric Bollert. He's been covering the Al-Aryan story since 2002. His latest article, Sami Al-Aryan, The Terror Verdict TV Networks Ignored, was published December 7th on HuffingtonPost.com. Bollert's book, Lapdogs, How Bush Got the Press to Heal, is due out this spring. Eric Bollert, welcome back to Counterspin. Thanks for having me. Eric, the feds have been eyeing Al-Aryan for about a decade. Could you give us a brief rundown of the trial? Yeah, it's a convoluted tale. The rough outlines are, in the mid-90s, there were uh, allegations raised, mostly through the Tampa Tribune, that a, a think tank that LRN was running at the University of South Florida was directly tied to Palestinian terrorist organizations. Over the years, I mean, it's been almost a decade, at various times the university suspended LRN, but various people looked into it. The university looked into it. They hired the former president of the, of the Bar Association, his report was that there was no evidence to suggest he was connected to terrorism. A federal judge related to a deportation case looked into it. He gave LR and essentially a clean bill of health. Then he, he wrestled with the university about whether he should have his job back. Then in, in the winter of 2003, the uh, federal prosecutors using the Patriot Act were able to use evidence that otherwise would have been off limits, particularly phone tap conversations. And they indicted him for being, again, connected to a terrorist organization in Palestine and not only fundraising, but sort of being the point man in North America for the Islamic Jihad. And how did the trial play out and what was the outcome of that? The trial started with a packed courthouse and a couple months later, anyone could have walked in and sat down. It went on for five months. The press accounts I read was it was sort of boring beyond imagination. 80 witnesses. Again, the government had 20,000 hours of telephone transcripts. They introduced a lot of that. They brought many uh, Israelis. They flew them over to talk about the suicide bombings that had occurred and tried to suggest that it was because of LRN that their you know, loved ones had been killed. So it dragged on for months and months. LRN's defense team put on no case. They rested immediately. They didn't really think there was much evidence there. You have to understand, Tampa is the Republican stronghold of Florida, very conservative. LRN's defense tried to get the trial moved. They failed. They tried to do lots of things in this trial, and they failed on every single count. The jury deliberated for 13 days and acquitted LRN on it, evaded the charges. There were, I believe, eight or nine left. Ten of the 12 jurors wanted to acquit LRN on every single count. So now he's still in jail. The, um, the odds are they'll probably try to deport him. I think the odds are less likely they'll try to retry him, but who knows, the government has spent at this point well over $30 million. Well, the government failed to link him to illegal actions, but they were able to show that he'd cheered suicide bombings, and in the early 90s he'd called for the death of Israel and of the United States. So he might not be a good guy, but the, the legal case was something else. 
you're right. There's a lot of the stuff that came out in trial that that over the years L. Arian I don't think had been forthcoming in terms of his level of involvement in terms of some of these Islamic groups. Uh, the problem with the case was some of the things he said were, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old. And also when the time he said it and the time he was associated, when he said some of the most sort of the over-the-top things, death to Israel, et cetera, et cetera, his group was not deemed a terrorist organization in 1991, 1992. It wasn't deemed that until 1995. So based on the current law, you only break the law in the United States if you align yourself, raise money, and try to help organizations that the State Department deems terrorist organizations. 91 and 92, when the best evidence showed that he was allied with these groups, it wasn't a terrorist organization, so they couldn't convict him on actions he took in 1991 and 92, because even then the government didn't think that group was so bad. There was not a strong link. The evidence was wildly stale by the time they went to trial. And again, you know, you have to understand, I mean, the indictment was announced February 2003, a month before the war. John Ashcroft announced it live on CNN. The trial never had anything to do with bin Laden or Saddam, but the government certainly tried to leave the impression that it was all about keeping America safe from terrorists. Well, it all started off with such a bang. In your HuffingtonPost.com piece, you compared how network news shows treated the 2003 indictments to how they treated the acquittals just last week. Tell us about that. Well, it was the lead story for ABC World News in February. I think it was February 20th, 2003. ABC and CBS Evening News both put it, I think, second or third, leading off the evening news. CNN, again, you know, they put Ash... All the cable channels had Ashcroft's press conference live that day. The acquittal was essentially ignored. ABC, CBS, and NBC completely ignored the jury announcement. CNN made two or three mentions of it, and uh, poor Fox News, which had played a central role and sort of had hyped it for years. I mean, they talked about it, but it was sort of comical in the way they backtrack and still did their best to portray him as guilty. Well, as you mentioned, Fox's Bill O'Reilly and the Tampa Tribune have played a a special sort of prosecutorial role in this whole case. Bill O'Reilly said at one time early on in this case that if Al Arian was acquitted, that he should get his job back at the University of Southern Florida. What do you think the chances of Bill O'Reilly coming out and calling for uh, the reinstatement? Uh, Not good. I mean, O'Reilly has been all over the map on this. He's called L. Arian a terrorist, then he said he shouldn't lose his job, and then he's called him a terrorist, and then he's saying he should get his job back. Certainly after the acquittal last week, O'Reilly was painting L. Arian as a terrorist who sort of somehow duped the system and that anyone who thought otherwise, like me, who he mentioned by name, was a loon or a, a terrorist right. sympathizer. So O'Reilly's clearly, you know, committed to this and thinks L. Arian is a terrorist and in three or two or three more years. If there's another trial, he'll get a chance to prove it again. We've been speaking with Eric Bullard, a contributing editor to Rolling Stone magazine. You can read his latest piece on the Al Arian case on the HuffingtonPost.com website. His book, Lapdogs, How Bush Got the Press to Heal, will be published this spring. Eric Bullard, thanks for joining us today on Counterspin. My pleasure. That's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the staff and interns at the Media Watch Group FAIR, based in New York. FAIR also publishes a bi-monthly magazine called Extra. For subscription information, you can call the following toll-free number, 1-800-847-3993. That's 
847-3993. Be sure to tell them you heard about Extra here on Counterspin. If you missed part of today's show or would like to hear other Counterspin broadcasts, you can do that at FAIR's website at www.fair.org. This show was engineered by Kelly Spivey at Mercer Media and co-hosted by Peter Hart. I'm Steve Rendell. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.